Welcome to Wine Country Women with Michelle Mandreau, the podcast for wine enthusiasts who are curious not only about what goes in the bottle, but the remarkable women who make these distinctive winemaking regions so special. Each week, Michelle introduces you to a prominent woman and takes a peek inside her life. Welcome to today's Wine Country Women podcast. I'm Michelle Mandreau, and I'm with Jane Lopes, who is the co-author of How to Drink Australian. Jane, it is fantastic to be spending a few minutes with you today. You are one busy woman with this brand new book, so thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Well, before we talk about your brand new book, let's talk about your career. How did you get interested in wine? I, yeah, that's always an interesting one. (laughs) Very few people, you know, are kind of graduating high school and saying, I want to work in wine. You know, I started drinking wine really when I studied abroad in in Rome in my, my junior year of college. And I just really loved the culture surrounding it. Um, I loved that it was just, um, you know, you just put a, a craft on the table and it was part of the meal and it brought people together and it kind of as like a very type A kid sort of like slowed me down a bit and encouraged me to just be present and enjoy the people around me. A very unique beverage in that in that respect that, you know, you don't sort of share your your beer your cocktail with the table but you have a craft or a bottle of wine that you share with the people around you and I think that's a really special thing so you know I I went back to college after that and I didn't really think about a career in wine but um uh when I graduated I was planning to apply to PhD programs and go into academia and I just needed a job (laughs) so I looked on Craigslist and found a job listening to work at a wine shop and uh i said that would be fun (laughs) and i applied and and for whatever reason they gave me the job i'm actually still good friends with the woman who hired me and who i worked with for a number of years and um uh i you know i never turned on those grad school applications i never looked back i really um i loved almost everything about wine i loved you know it was pretty, it was as academic as you kind of wanted it to be, um, but also, you know, social and community driven and sensory, and I uh, I just really fell in love with it. Why be a Psalm? How did you decide to get that accreditation? Was that a natural thing after working at the wine shop? Yeah, it kind of felt natural like the crowd I was sort of the the wine crowd I was I was in and it was in Chicago um even though we were uh working in retail we all sort of started taking the court of master sommelier exams together and I would go to sort of study and tasting groups with um with uh, master sommelier in Chicago and so I kind of and I always loved I always loved restaurants something even as a kid kind of I really I really loved and wanted to go to to fancy restaurants and so it it seemed like kind of a natural extension of of working in wine for me um and I got um I in Chicago was actually in addition to working at the wine shop I was bartending at a bar called Violet Hour um which is kind of one of the original craft cocktail bars in Chicago and 
one of the partners in that business was helping um, with a partner in a bar in Nashville and his partners in Nashville were opening a restaurant and they needed a wine director and they wanted someone who, you know, was knowledgeable about, about wine as well as cocktails and sort of, you know, mixing drinks. And um, so I, you know, they, they hired me for that job. And so I moved down to Nashville and that was sort of my first, restaurant sort of sommelier gig um, at Catbird Seat, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a Catbird Seat. So, um, so yeah, I kind of didn't didn't look back from there and really um, dove into working in restaurants. Okay, and then you ended up in New York City at Eleventh Madison Park, and then just to move this story along, you had an opportunity to be the wine director at Attica in Melbourne, Australia. So, how did you decide? to take that position or apply for the position, I guess, even? Um, I didn't really apply for the position. Um, I had um, worked at Love Madison Park with a guy named Kevin McKean, who, Irish gentleman, but had um, kind of worked in restaurants all over the world. And um, he he was a manager at Love Madison Park, and then he moved to Melbourne to be the general manager for Attica. Ah. And so I was... Um, I had given my notice at 11 Madison Park. I was planning to take some time off and write my first book and study for the Master Sommelier exam. And I, you know, just told him, told him that I'd give my notice, and he said, "Great, I need a wine director. You should move to Australia." Um, and at first, my then then boyfriend, now husband, kind of we were said, "That's crazy. We can't move to Australia." And then. And then, you know, the more we kind of thought about it, we're like, that's crazy. We we should move to Australia. Um, so, you know, I had a few, this was pre-Zoom days, I had a few Skype meetings with uh, with the team at Attica. And, you know, we, we all thought it was going to be a good fit. And so they offered me the job. And, uh, yeah, I moved over to Australia in February of 2017. And it's the really the position that changed your life forever. Absolutely. I mean, certainly changed the direction of my career. Um, yeah, I mean, we really sort of pivoted to devote our entire careers, my husband and I, to to Australian wine. Right. And we certainly would never have um, never have predicted that going in going into that move. So you lived in Australia for two or three years. Would that be about right? Three. Three, yeah. Three. Uh, moved, yeah, moved back in March of 2020. Okay, so why leave? There were kind of a few reasons. There was some sort of visa stickiness uh, in Australia, and early on we sort of had to get on a visa path that was not going to lead us to permanent residency and citizenship. Right. You know, we made that decision because we just felt like we didn't want to be really half a world away from our families for sure. the indefinite future. Right. Um, and we also sort of early on got in our, our heads that we would import Australian wine to the U.S. because here's sort of this really underrepresented category and we have this first-hand knowledge of it. And, um, and, and we knew that if we wanted to do that job, we needed to be on the ground in the U.S. really, um, really you know, Wine. Sure. So, so kind of a confluence of all those things. Okay. So in March of 2020, you launched Legend Australia, your import business. 
Yeah, we didn't, I think we formed the LLC in May, and then we maybe announced the company in like July or August, and I think our first container of wine landed in like uh, October. So what do you like most about the wines in Australia? A lot of Australia's most famous styles, you know, Clear Valley Riesling, Hunter Semillon, Barossa Shiraz, are sort of a very limited view of what Australia is doing. You know, Australia has more kind of grape planting diversity than any country in the world. You can get fantastic, all sort of the usual suspects, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, Cabernet mm-hmm. Sauvignon. Um, but then you can also get absolutely incredible, like, Tempranillo and Sangiovese and Grenache Blanc. And, you know, they just, there is this wide diversity. And I, and Australia has really every wine growing climate you can imagine, like from coldest of the cold to warmest of the warm, high elevation, maritime, alpine, Mediterranean, you know, you, you get it all in different pockets of Australia. So that would probably be the biggest misconception that people have. You think of Australia as as hot (laughs) and hot hot desert sort of red earth and there is that element to it for sure and you know wine growing cannot take place uh, across the full continent um really is relegated to certain areas but within those areas you do get a true diversity of different different styles of wine what's great about your book you do break it down by regions which i think is fantastic and you kind of do a deep dive into each region yeah, exactly. You know, we really felt like that was a missing piece of the puzzle for Australia, that there wasn't this, like, regional focus. You know, with, when you talk about French wine, you don't, you actually don't really talk about French wine. You talk about Bordeaux or Burgundy or Alsace or the Rhone or Loire Valley. Or, you know, there's a, a kind of this level of regionality that's really um, homed in on. And um, for Australia, that's really missing, you know. If people do have an Australian section on their wine list, it's just Australia, you know? Right. Um, no one's sort of talking about the nuances of of what you're getting differently from, you know, Barossa Valley and Muir Valley and Tasmania and Masses and Ranges and Beechworth and all these really incredible diverse wine regions. It's fantastic. Are you guys one of the only importers of Australian wine to the U.S.? They're not a ton. I'd say there are about half a dozen pretty Aussie-focused importers, maybe really only like three that are exclusively Australian. So it's not it's not a, a big group of us who are kind of fighting the fighting the, <laughs> the fight for Australian wine over here. So you have this business. Why create the book? What was your thought process there? That it complements the business, or that people did need an education? of Australia? It was, it was definitely kind of a combination of the first two factors. Like when we started selling Australian wine over here, people were really blown away by it. And there was kind of this like sentiment of like, okay, but how do I like actually learn more about Australian wine? And so we started doing like study guides on our website, but we just wanted like with literally with like hand-drawn maps. Um, but we just wanted, we really felt like Australia deserved better than that. Like Australia deserved a sort of foundational, uh, wine book, you know, the way that many, many other wine regions across the world, world really have that. And so I had sort of a relationship with a 
publisher from my my first book and we approached them and they said, let's do it. <laughs> and, you know, wine books are not super lucrative in general. Mm-hmm. So we had to kind of get creative about, you know, we, we brought on, um, we found an amazing cartographer who was also sort of a, a wine nerd who was willing to come on as like sort of an, an author for, for an author sort of uh, stipend. <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, we managed to get a lot of the photography rights for free from either producers or tourism or wine governmental bodies in Australia. And so we kind of um, were able to do it on somewhat of a, a shoestring budget. And, you know, we just performed a lot of interviews. We, 20, 2021 was really, um, you know, most, days we were doing work for legend or we were in market kind of doing very hands-on work for, for selling wine and then the you names we would be on the phone on zoom talking to australian winemakers and viticulturists and um sommeliers and sort of just conducting as many interviews as we could to, to kind of form the basis for the book so yeah, that was sort of the the impetus and the sort of the, the methodology. And the book just came out in August, so it hasn't been out for very long. Yeah, and it came out August in Australia. It, it just came out September 12th in the United States. Okay. Going back to your import business, you are bringing in Australian wines. How many different producers are you bringing in? And who are some of your, some of your favorite producers? <laughs> yeah, we have 30... Uh, 32 producers right now, which is really exciting. And, you know, they're, they're obviously all our babies. Um, <laughs> you know, we really, we worked with these wines in Australia. We visited most of the wineries. Yeah, we really are big fans of all of these wines and really felt like they brought something different to the table in the U.S. But a few, a few I can throw out there. Um, you know, Sepulfield we're really proud to represent their super historic winery in Australia, founded in 1851. And they have the longest lineage of single vintage wine in barrel of any winery in the world. Hmm. Um, so uh, it's their, their fortified wine collection. They have every vintage from 1878 till 2023 in barrel. So it's um, pretty, pretty extraordinary. And they're also, you know, making some really beautifully balanced sort of classic Australian wines and their Shiraz and Grenache and, and Clare Valley Riesling. And they're, um, yeah, really, really extraordinary. We work with a producer called Chalmers, who sort of at the forefront of Italian grape usage in Australia. They have their own vine nursery that since the 90s, they've brought in almost 80 different grapes to Australia, vine material, mainly Italian grapes, um, which have become incredibly popular across Australia. Uh, Australia, after Italy, of course, has more Italian grapes than anywhere else in the world. So it's become a really kind of integral part of the, the wine industry over there. How bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Australia's really um, become quite tuned in to grape suitability for, right. for the land. And mm-hmm. I mentioned there is a great diversity of climates, but right. one of those climates is sort of warm, dry Mediterranean climates. Mm-hmm. And you know, those are climates that you really shouldn't be trying to plant Pinot Noir and, uh, right. and Chardonnay, maybe Cabernet Sauvignon. And so, 
people have really you know, kind of led by the Converse family have really are really paying attention to, okay, well, what's going to be the best grape for my site? Right. And maybe it's Nerdavala, you know, and maybe, uh, maybe it's Pickle. There's just um, people are really having fun with it. And, and a big part of the conversation right now in Australia, in fact, a, a, a really important wine writer named Max Allen um, in Australia, he just came out with a book called Alternative Reality which sort of profiles all these different alternative grapes that are really um, becoming so important in Australia. Well, as we said, the book is broken down by regions, but your website, Legend Australia, also breaks down Australia by different regions and shows the different producers that you are bringing into the United States from each of those regions, which is super cool too. Well, and it's not just the producers that we're bringing in. It's really, um, these are sort of all all the important producers in Australia. We actually, as much as we were sort of inspired to write the book by um, what we saw when we were importing, we didn't want our own producers and personal preferences to kind of um, bias the book. We really wanted to present a, a really complete picture of what's going on in Australia. And so we brought in a number of Australian collaborators on the book who really helped us sort of stay on track in that respect. Over the course of your career, has there been someone that has mentored you along the way that you can speak to? You know, I feel like I'm most impacted sort of by my colleagues in the industry rather than mentors per se. One of the sort of facets of facility exams is that because they're not classes or laid out curriculum, you really depend on your community to come together and create study guides together, do tasting groups together. And so I really feel like at every step of the way, I've had this sort of close-knit group of colleagues who are sort of um, on this you know, path of, of learning and growing and supporting each other. And so that's probably been the most influential group in my career rather than someone sort of, I guess, from a different point in their career who's sort of mentored me. Who or what motivated you to write your very first book? So I, I studied English literature in college and did a lot of both sort of analytic and creative writing. And so it was always a passion of mine that sort of fell to the wayside when I started in the wine industry and I had done an interview with my alumni magazine at University of Chicago. And there was a, a literary agent who had gone to the University of Chicago as well, who reached out to me. I think he sent me a DM on Twitter, said, you, you should write a book. <laughs> you have an interesting path. And so we actually sat down and got coffee uh, in New York and um, chatted a little bit. And um, that was sort of the the kick in the pants I needed to be like, you know, I should write a book and I can write a book. And, and I really wanted it to be show, not tell what wine meant to me and had meant to me. And it, you know, this very kind of personal and emotional relationship with wine and how it had really been um, a part of my life and in a really positive way. And so it became this sort of very visual piece of wine education paired with sort of personal narrative for my, for my own life. And, it was a little bit hard to get a publisher on that one since it was a, you know, kind of a, a concept that hadn't really been done. And um, 
Um, although it was funny, within a few months of each other, Andre Mack and I both published kind of a similar concept. So we were both thinking about it at the same time. And so, yeah, I ended up kind of putting it on the back burner when I moved to Australia and then found a publisher there who got on board and, and really did a great job with it. So after that, I felt like I could write another book. And I was a little bit naive because the second book was a lot more, just a lot more research intensive and a lot more moving parts. But, um, you know, I got to the finish line. <laughs> okay. Top moment of your career so far? You know, I think it would be sort of, the very empowering moments, like publishing my books, like starting this company, you know, there was, was something like truly amazing to see a bottle of like the first time we saw wine that we imported on, on a shelf or on a wine list over here. I mean, it's still like always like a big thrill whenever we see it, but like the first time it was just so cool. It was like, just, you know, this only happened because we, you know, have built a relationship with the Australian wineries. We, started the company, we arranged the logistics, we got the wine over here, we set up distribution relationships, we helped them sell wine, like all of these sort of things had to come together to get that bottle on that shelf. Sure. Um, and it just felt like very empowering that, um, you know, that that we were able to do that. So those would probably be my kind of my, my top, um, my top one. Is there a place where people can find where these wines are located on-premise and off-premise? Yeah, so so the easiest way is just to reach out to us and we have our contact on the website. You know, it's kind of too too many stockists and it's changing too, too frequently to sort right. of list, um, to be able to list everybody. You know, when people reach out to us, what we'll do is we'll find out where they are in the country and then we'll be able to advise on, um, on who kind of typically works with the wines and um, yeah, we have distribution in 25 states. Um, So we're like halfway there. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. That's great. What's ahead? You know, I always say like, we don't need another project. Um, But then of course, as soon as one is done, I'm thinking about the next. I actually have thought about a podcast. It would be very, very different than yours. Um, But uh, that's something that crossed my mind do a podcast um there's also there's sort of a alternative packaging that john and i are working on so we have a few irons in the fire um but you know the the rest of this year will probably just be for the most part on the road traveling doing events for the books and for the wines um you know we really just want to grow legend to kind of a, a very stable place Learn more about the women who live in wine country when you purchase one of our lifestyle books at winecountrywomen.com. Well, now let's shift to your personal life. When you left Australia, you landed in Nashville. Why Nashville? Are you big country music fans? Is that it? Uh, that is not it. <laughs> and I actually, I don't, I like some country music, John, less so, but um, it wasn't a, it certainly wasn't a deciding factor either, either way. You know, we came back in the beginning of the pandemic. We came back in, in end of March, 2020. And we lived in California with my family for a little bit. Then we lived in New Jersey with John's family while we were getting the company set up. So we were kind of nomads for about a year. 
you know, we were definitely got a little sick of that lifestyle. Sure. <laughs> so we, you know, we were thinking about, we didn't want to be in LA or New York. You know, we didn't want to be really on either, either coast because A, very expensive and B, just for ease of getting around the country in terms of sort of our distribution network, we didn't want to be, you know, on one side or the other. So we kind of brainstorm a few different places that would be relatively central, have a good airport, be somewhat affordable. Um, you know, and I had lived in Nashville before, so I knew Nashville and I knew some people here. Um, you know, we could kind of walk into having a little bit more of a, of a friend, friend network. And so, you know, it really just checked checked all the boxes. So, um, yeah, we moved to Nashville in May of 2021. So if we took a step inside your home, what would we see? What's your decorating style? A eclectic mix of like mid-century and like Americana. <laughs> it's, a, it's definitely eclectic. We have pretty much every room is painted a different color and oftentimes a very, a fairly bright color. Actually, the paint company we used, they sent us the wrong paint once, and it was like this really, really bright teal. And so we're like, yeah, we can paint like the kind of office gym area that color. Um, and then most of the downstairs is sort of shades of, of green and blue. And, you know, kind of a mix of like uh, a lot of like antique stuff that we found with, with new stuff. Like we have, we found this couch we call the cowboy couch that sort of we got at a a consignment store here in Nashville that it does like the sides are like wheel spokes and it has cowboy print. <laughs> um, but then it's like right next to these like terrazzo yellow sort of um, like modern tables. So, you know, it's, we just have a bit of fun with it and it feels, we want it to feel sort of just comfortable and fun. Um, favorite room in your house? Probably our like TV room. It's painted like this really beautiful sort of deep blue. Um, we have this like very comfortable sort of cushy couch, and then this like we got this like giant metal. It's supposed to be like a lawn ornament or stuff, but it's like Sasquatch. Okay. <laughs> like it's a giant. Like it's a giant creature, and um, it kind of is the main artwork in the room. And I just I I always find find that room very kind of uh, comfortable and soothing, but also a lot of fun. All right. When you kick back and relax, what kind of music do you enjoy listening to? You know, it's cliche, but I kind of listen to a lot of different things. I'm not someone who pays attention to music too much, um, but there, there are definitely some sort of like more folksy, like country artists that I like. I like hip-hop and rap. I like a lot of sort of 70s acoustic sort of music. You know, I'm a, a kid of the 90s, so certainly when any sort of popular 90s song comes on, I'm going to be happy. So, um, yeah, it's a pretty pretty eclectic roster. Okay. When you have a dinner party, how do you ensure that it's a success? What's your secret? Do you have a go-to dish that's always a crowd pleaser? No, and usually my husband is a bit more of the the cook when we have kind of people over, and he really is is just likes to make new things and be creative. And um, I'm more of sort of the the baker in in the family. Um, but yeah, we just like to we kind of usually pick a theme and see what's in the fridge that we need to get rid of, and make some recipes around that. And we 
I think the secret, probably our secret, is to try to do as much as possible before people arrive so that it's not hectic. We can just sort of sit down and enjoy, enjoy, you know, appetizers. I think appetizers is another is another key to have something out for people to snack on so that if dinner isn't ready right away, there's there's something that uh, no one's getting, you know, no one's starving. Sure. Um, yeah, we, we actually do. We entertain a fair amount. And we just, I think if you're, think if you're relaxed and having fun, your guests will be. Relaxed and having fun, for sure. Yeah. Um, is there something people might be surprised to learn about you? Do you collect something unusual? Do you um, skydive? Do you rappel down mountains? Did you do something wild and crazy as a kid? I like horror movies more than the average bear. Um, <laughs> oh my goodness. But my husband really doesn't like them. So I end up watching them usually either on planes or, and this is sort of, this is the secret, this is the, the weird thing. I'll watch them while I donate platelets fairly regularly. <laughs> and I don't know if you know the process for like donating platelets and plasma, but basically they'll hook you up to sort of the, the machine because they, they take blood out of your body and then they put it through sort of reverse osmosis and they pull out the platelets of the plasma and then they put the blood back into your body. And that's why you can um, donate platelets fairly often, unlike donating blood, because you're not actually losing the blood. Right. Um, but so you can't, you basically have a needle in, in both arms. You sort of can't move. Oh. And so they put you in this, like, chair, and you have, you know, you can watch movies. And so I'm usually, uh, I'm usually sitting there watching horror movies. My, my husband thinks it's the most morbid thing on the planet that I'm sitting there with blood going in and out of my arms just watching horror movies but yeah so that's a, a, a weird thing about me <laughs> yes i would say that's very unique i haven't I heard so. i think so <laughs> haven't heard that one before for sure on a, a lighter note um other than your time in australia is there another memorable trip or meaningful trip that you could tell me about yeah you know the first sort of big wine trip I did, and I visited a few regions before this, but, but in 2013, I won through, like, Fieldsom, a trip to Alto Adige. Um, so I thought I would come early and stay a little bit late and do some of my own wine travel. And so I flew into Germany, and I rented a car, and I sort of drove all around Germany and into Alsace. And then flew to Italy and went to a handful of places in northern Italy. Um, and it was really, you know, it, it was really empowering to just sort of do a solo trip and just be on my, you know, my own time, my own schedule, figuring it all out myself. And, um, you know, this was before the time of, like, really reliable um, car GPS, too. So I was just, like, figuring it out and... Um, you know, got to taste a lot of good wine and meet a lot of amazing people. Um, but really just having that kind of solo trip was, was pretty incredible. Okay, well, we're going to wrap things up with five quick questions. You ready, Jane? I'm ready. Okay, they're very lighthearted. Who would be your dream dinner guest, living or dead? I, I get asked this and I just don't have a good answer. I think I'd have to go William Shakespeare. There's just a lot of mysteries around around him that 
would be good to know. Okay. Your all-time favorite pairing. What is it? It was it was this dish I had at a restaurant in Copenhagen, and it was not an alcoholic pairing. It was caviar and walnut, and like house-made walnut milk, and it was absolutely unbelievable. Hmm. That's unique. What's your favorite city? The city that you can go back to again and again and again and never get bored? Probably New York. Okay. Love New York. What's one word that best describes you? Trying. <laughs> not trying. I guess trying not as an adjective, more as a verb. You know, just yeah, trying my best every day. <laughs> okay. And last question. What's your favorite dessert? You said you're a baker. You know, I have to go with just like a really good chocolate chip cookie. Okay. Jane, it has been a true delight to spend some time with you today. Oh, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Visit winecountrywomen.com to join our exclusive list so you can be the first to learn about upcoming offers and events. Grab a glass and join us next week for a new edition of Wine Country Women.